0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!. The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism. These threats aren't looming, they're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this—
1: is Democracy Now. Unless real living conditions are created for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh in their homes and effective mechanisms of protection from ethnic cleansing, then the likelihood that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh will see exile from their homeland as the only way to preserve their lives and identity increases significantly.
0: Nearly 90,000 ethnic Armenians have fled their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh After Azerbaijan carried out a military blitz to seize the contested territory, we'll go to Armenia for the latest. Then to Ukrainian-American journalist Lev Golinkin, who revealed that the Ukrainian World War II veteran honored last week in the Canadian House of Commons was actually a Nazi. Lev's reporting set off a diplomatic crisis in Canada.
1: This is a Nazi who swore allegiance to Hitler, and he was part of the group that fought for the third Reich under command of Nazi officers.
0: Finally, to the deputy foreign minister of Cuba, we'll speak with him about the recent attack on the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C., and U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba.
2: The aim of the United States' policy since 1960 has been to make life as difficult and as unbearable as possible for the people of Cuba, with the ambition that that would lead to the overthrow of the government. That is the impact for the people of Cuba.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. U.S. officials have begun notifying federal workers that the government may shut down Saturday midnight. During a shutdown, millions of federal workers will stop being paid, including members of the military and air traffic controllers. Millions of recipients of government aid may also lose access to benefits, including seven million women and children who rely on the WIC program, the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants and children. While the Senate is working on a bipartisan proposal to keep the government open, no progress appears to have been made in the House, where far right lawmakers are in a battle with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The House passed a number of spending bills Thursday night, including a $300 million military aid package for Ukraine. But the bills will not avert a shutdown. This comes as The Washington Post reports a group of far-right Republicans are plotting to remove McCarthy as speaker as soon as next week. President Biden addressed the possible shutdown in a speech in Tempe, Arizona, at an event honoring the late Republican Senator John McCain.
2: Extremists in Congress more determined to shut down the government to burn the place down than to let the people's business be done.
0: During the same speech, Biden warned that Donald Trump and the MAGA movement threatens the future of democracy in the United States.
2: And there's something dangerous happening in America now. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. The MAGA movement.
3: They're not hiding their attacks. They're openly
2: promoting them, attacking the free press as the enemy of the people, attacking the rule of law as an impediment, fomenting voter suppression and election subversion.
0: Biden's speech in Arizona was interrupted by the climate activist, Kai Newkirk, who called on the president to to declare a climate emergency
3: excuse my interruption, Mr. President, but I'm compelled by conscience to ask why you have yet to declare a climate emergency. Why have you yet to declare a climate emergency? Hundreds of Arizonans have died.
2: I tell you what, if you
3: shush up, I'll meet with you immediately after this. Okay?
0: For climate news, 18 youth activists with the Sunrise Movement were arrested Thursday after they occupied the office of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, demanding he take action on the climate crisis and avert a government shutdown. Despite the imminent government shutdown, the Republican-controlled House Oversight Committee held its first hearing in its impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden Thursday. The hearing did not go as planned, as the Republicans' own witnesses, including forensic accountant Bruce Dubinsky and George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley, admitted there's no evidence Biden committed impeachable offenses.
3: I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. I am not here today
2: to even suggest that there was corruption, fraud or any wrongdoing.
0: Republican leaders have deemed staffers dealing with the impeachment inquiry to be essential workers so they can keep working and being paid even if the government shuts down. During the House oversight hearing, Republican lawmakers refused to say if former President Donald Trump should be held accountable if convicted. They were asked that question by Texas Democratic Congress member
4: Greg Cassar. Well, members of the Oversight Committee, please raise your hand if you believe both Hunter and Trump should be held accountable for any of the indictments against them if convicted by a jury of their peers. Raise your hand if you think that equal justice under the law applies and if Trump should be held accountable. I think it is worse than embarrassing that Republicans won't raise their hands. They refuse to say that equal justice under the law should apply to everyone.
0: A New York appeals court has rejected an effort by Donald Trump to delay his civil fraud trial, which is scheduled to begin Monday. Earlier this week, the trial judge ruled Trump and his sons, Eric and Donald Trump Jr., had fraudulently inflated the value of their assets by billions of dollars to obtain loans and lower their insurance rates. This could lead to Trump losing control of some of his most iconic New York properties, including... Trump Tower, where his apartment is. Meanwhile, Trump has decided against trying to move his election interference trial in Georgia from a state to a federal court. In Pakistan, at least 52 people have died in a suicide bombing in the province, in the province of Balochistan. The bombing occurred near a mosque as worshipers gathered for a religious procession to mark the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. A separate blast today hit a mosque near Peshawar City, killing at least five people. No groups claimed responsibility for the blasts. The United Nations Refugee Agency is reporting more than 2,500 people have died or gone missing this year while attempting to cross the Mediterranean to seek protection in Europe. That's a sharp increase over last year when about 1,700 migrants died or went missing. A top official of the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees official called on nations to do far more to save lives. All Mediterranean states must urgently step up. Search and rescue efforts and implement
5: effective and predictable disembarkation mechanisms. Saving lives at sea and providing humanitarian assistance is one of the most basic obligations of humanity and those performing rescue operations or helping in good faith should not be penalized for doing so.
0: In Niger, protesters gathered again outside a French military base in the capital Niamey demanding an immediate withdrawal of French troops. French President Emmanuel Macron has vowed to remove French troops over the coming months. The prominent Pan-African activist Kemi Seba of Benin addressed protesters.
3: To taste freedom, Every people has the right to taste independence. Every people has the right to regain its dignity. And if France won't let Africans breathe, we're going to force it to listen to us.
0: The former president of Bolivia, Gonzalo Sánchez de Lozada, and his former defense minister have agreed to pay damages to eight people killed during a 2003 massacre in the largely indigenous Aymara city of El Alto. The murders happened as massive indigenous led protests erupted across Bolivia against a proposed pipeline in what became known as the Gas War. One plaintiff in the case was Teofilo Balthazar Cerro, whose pregnant wife was killed by a bullet fired through the wall of a house. He said, quote, I feel proud that Aymara Bolivians showed the world that no leader, no matter how rich or powerful they are, has absolute impunity. Unquote. The U.S. case against Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada was brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. In Mexico, three arrests have been made in the state of Zacatecas after an armed group kidnapped seven teenagers Sunday. After days of searching, the bodies of six of them were found on Wednesday. One teen survived and is being treated in the hospital. Three of the teenagers were cousins. The rest were classmates. They were abducted while they were together for a sleepover. The killings have sparked outrage in a community where fighting between rival drug cartels has led to a soaring number of murders and disappearances. Many have blamed the U.S.-backed war on drugs for exacerbating drug cartel violence in mexico in news from texas a 29 year old man from the city of palestine has pleaded guilty to federal smuggling charges for his role in the death of 53 migrants from mexico guatemala and honduras who died in the back of a sweltering hot truck in san antonio last year christian martinez faces up to life in prison he's the first of the sixth charge in the case to plead guilty In New Mexico, a protest over the reinstallment of a statue of the violent Spanish conquistador Juan de Niate was disrupted Thursday when a man wearing a red MAGA hat opened fire and shot a Native American protester who had to be airlifted to a hospital. The shooting occurred in the city of Española. The shooter was taken into custody after he drove away in a white Tesla, the 16th century conquistador. Juan de Oñate, is a controversial figure in New Mexico. In 1599, a year after he became New Mexico's first colonial governor, he ordered a massacre that killed between 800 and 1,000 Acoma indigenous people. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has sued Elon Musk's electric car manufacturer, Tesla, for allowing rampant racial abuse of black workers at its plant in Fremont, California. Tesla is also accused of retaliating against workers who raised objections to the racist harassment. In a statement, the federal agency said, quote, Black employees regularly encountered graffiti, including variations of the N-word, swastikas, threats and nooses on desks and other equipment, in bathroom stalls, within elevators, and even on new vehicles rolling off the production line, California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed legislation to increase the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 an hour. The law also creates a new council to help set industry-wide standards on pay and working conditions. The law takes effect April 1st. And on Capitol Hill, Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Congressmember Jabal Bowman of New York have introduced the Green New Deal for Public Schools Act, a 1.6 trillion dollar initiative to eliminate all carbon pollution from schools. Congressmember Bowman, who's a former school principal, spoke outside the Capitol Thursday.
1: Schools without windows. I know, I have worked in them. Without windows and burning fossil fuels constantly with toxins all throughout the air. Where kids, we're asking kids, our most precious and vulnerable resource, to go learn in these spaces. That's what we're asking them to do. So while we are asking them to go to a place to be nurtured and loved and educated, we are also harming and killing them at the same time. So the Green New Deal for public schools is a response to this crisis.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Nagorno-Karabakh, where the president of the self-declared republic at the center of a decades-long dispute between Azerbaijan and Armenia announced this week the government will dissolve itself by January 1st. This comes just days after Azerbaijan carried out a military blitz to seize the territory, which is mostly made up of ethnic Armenians after a 35-year fight for political autonomy. Hundreds were killed in the attack. Now Armenian officials report more than half of Nagorno-Karabakh's 120,000 residents have fled to Armenia. Thousands remain without food, shelter and clean sources of drinking water. This is one of the refugees speaking from Goris, Armenia we don't know what happens to us next we don't know what the government has in store for us there is not a single chance to go back if there were chances we would not leave in the first place it is very dangerous there in response to the worsening crisis, Samantha Power, head of USAID, said the U.S. would provide $11.5 million in aid and urge Azerbaijan to facilitate access to humanitarian workers. Armenia is warned of an ethnic cleansing campaign in the contested region. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Azerbaijan arrested the former head of the Nagorno Karabakh government as he was trying to cross into Armenia. For more, we're joined by Rubina Magozian, managing editor with EVN Report, an independent media outlet based in Armenia. She reported from Nagorno-Karabakh during the 2020 war. She's joining us from Yerevan, Armenia's capital. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Rubina. Can you talk about exactly what's happening and for a global audience to explain the historical context as well?
4: Well that's a big question. That's a question that goes back so long and uh, I'll turn it back, but let me let me start with what's happening today. Uh recently it's this is ethnic cleansing. If uh, just if we listen to the numbers of see the numbers of people leaving Nagonohara their homeland, their centuries old homeland. It was seventy-eight thousand people last night at ten PM so at ten AM eighty-eight thousand people have left. So, 10,000 in 12 hours. These are people who are just leaving everything behind, getting out in any means possible, even in cars that are not functional. Um, why is this happening is basically the question that we're going to try to answer. Uh, but there's no one and short answer. This is, however, happening after 10 months of these people being Starving, being in a blockade, being threatened, their lives constantly under threat. This is happening after they've been held hostage by Azerbaijan and all of a sudden uh, they're told they can leave uh, or reintegrate into Azerbaijan. This is like the Azerbaijani former term. We integrate uh, after being attacked. And, and put, uh, on the 19th of September, Azerbaijan, as you called it, uh, organized a blitz attack, calling it an anti terrorist measure. Uh, which very much sounds like uh, Russia's uh, special operation in Ukraine. So after Azerbaijan's special operation in Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, uh, hundreds of civilians died. Civilians died, and now these people have no option. Whether to, they, they have no options. They have if they want to survive, they have to leave, and they are leaving. And the assumption is, after a couple of days, there will be another single Armenian left in Azov. Whoever's left. Will probably be arrested, as we saw with Ruben Vartanian's case. He was arrested upon um, at the checkpoint and Lachin corridor. Uh, Reuters has reported that Azerbaijan has extensive blacklists of people they're uh, they're willing to they want looking for. They want to arrest uh, and what charges? No one really sure is sure of uh, made up charges. So, this is the situation right now on the ground. Uh, people are fleeing for their lives uh, because time and again they know there's no surviving Azerbaijan as, as for historically. Well, um, well let me
0: you know, ask you, what, uh, let me first ask you about the significance of uh, the head of Nagorno Karabakh saying that the area will. That Nagorno as is known now will cease to exist by the end of the year, and the fact that he's been arrested trying to get into Armenia.
4: Well, we don't know that he has himself has been arrested. That is not a confirmed That's not confirmed news. We actually do not have news of. From get altogether, there are the very few independent journalists that were left there reporting on the situation have already left. So effectively, we have no communication with nagorno karabakh those who are still there, uh, some officials that we have no news about. Uh, we don't know if they're there, if they've managed to get out. We are not hearing from them, uh, and there's no, nothing confirmed at this point. As for... Uh, your question was with the government being dissolved is that the question yes well they have until january 1st to do this uh but this is not so much about whether or not a republic that no one recognized uh is it still gonna exist or not whether or not those institutions that for over 32 years people have built whether or not a a democracy that could have been and was, and uh, well, uh, a more established democracy than Azerbaijan. And this is not just me saying, this is every human, human rights report uh, uh, ever saying that even uh, uh, elections in Nagorno-Karabakh were more free and fair than elections have ever been in Azerbaijan. So it's basically this democracy dying. If, uh, if you want a kind of an explanation of what's happening, otherwise, Nebula about was never recognized by anyone. And if it ceased to exist, that means technically nothing other than a humanitarian disaster, the death of a possible, uh, possible democracy, of a democracy, uh, happening democracy, and also just a human rights failure all over the place uh, from any perspective, from a perspective of contemporary human rights and uh, from a historical perspective. So over the, humanitarian failure.
0: over the weekend, Armenia asked the United Nations for help monitoring the rights of ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, arguing they face the prospect of ethnic cleansing. Armenia's prime minister said he needed guarantees from Azerbaijan that citizens, uh, that civilians would be protected. This is what he said.
1: Unless real living conditions are created for the Armenians of nagorno karabakh in their homes and effective mechanisms of protection from ethnic cleansing, then the likelihood that the Armenians of nagorno karabakh will see exile from their homeland as the only way to preserve their lives and identity increases significantly.
0: So is that happening? And Rubina, you are just back from Goris, where many refugees um, are coming. Describe what you found.
4: It has happened, it's almost done happening, uh, and it's not just last week that Armenia was warning about this. Armenia has warning about this for years, and at least for 10 months, This is the, we had three secure, uh, UN Security Council sessions, uh, but as we know, and as like, the whole situation has demonstrate, uh, demonstrated, uh, by acting like this, Azerbaijan has effectively demonstrated that uh, the highest platforms of humanitarian law, the highest uh, platforms of uh, of the world, the foreign ministries of dozens and dozens, uh, dozens of countries, their word means nothing. Their resolutions will amount to not much. They basically, as Azerbaijan has demonstrated with what is happening right now, that uh, th- these platforms this uh, these uh, countries, even uh, their foreign ministries, are bankrupt, and essentially anything they say is null and void of any effect and I would say this is great news for any perpetrator regime in the world, and which we see happening and uh, all over the place this this is a uh, the victory of a dictatorship over democracy and uh, this is a dictatorship that has already also targeted Armenia. What is happening now on the border? What was happening is in Gori. These are people, people passed a two hour, less than two hour drive in 36 hours. These are pa- people who just came with whatever they had, whatever they could pack with whatever means they could. These are people who were just like cramped in the back of pickup trucks, in the, the back of trucks that are used for cattle just to make it. They sat on a corridor under enemy supervision for 36 hours with no communication. Now they're arriving in Armenia. What's the situation here? They have no, the government is there. There's like several humanitarian uh access points where they're given all the help and they're given direction as to where to go. They're given uh, directions as to how to get lodgings where. And they're promised also kind of a livelihood and effectively jobs eventually. But these people, I uh, mean, what I can tell you, are terrified. They uh, they're, they just survived. And I would like not call them anything else than genocide survivors. And this is a very uh, heavy word for any Armenian to use. Uh, and now they're being asked, well where do you want to live and uh, they say nowhere on the border because we cannot face the same enemy over and over again and as you know Armenia basically most of its borders are with Azerbaijan and Turkey which, like stretches and stretch. there's no place in Armenia technically speaking that is not a border if you're sitting in Yerevan and you're looking at Mount Ararat that's Turkey. And if people are saying that we do not want to go to any border communities uh, because we, we just can't bear. Uh, and there's like, it's, it's just uh, any other humanitarian disaster. And I was listening to your introduction. The world is full of them. Uh, the world has failed this over and over again in this respect. And yes, Samantha Power was here and the U.S. Prime promised $11.5 million in assistance. And I don't understand this humanitarian access to where? To a place where there are no longer people. To a place where, uh, as I have announced today, that already kind of 2,300 uh, 2, Azerbaijanis have moved into the homes that are still probably warm from the Armenians that were there. So, uh, And, you know, this is one kind of disaster the world can uh, easily... Forgive itself for its failures, because if people are coming to Armenia uh, as Armenian citizens, as Armenians. They will not be knocking on European doors. They will not be camps anywhere. They will be uh, living within their with their own. And, uh, it will not be a source sight for the world to see for decades. It would not be like Shatila, like in Lebanon with the Palestinians. Rubina, you, Rubino, so this, you uh, see the, this, yes?
0: you've said you see this as a proxy war with Turkey and Israel on one side, um, and, uh, Turkey and Israel are, uh, uh, Explain the role of Turkey, Israel, Russia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan.
4: Uh, well, uh, it's pretty clear, actually, that uh, um, Israel, Israel has been kind of a military partner for Azerbaijan even before this latest, before the, uh, September 19, where the, when the attack it, it started on uh, on nagorno we so we were reporting about the increased flights from Israel that uh, with uh, military equipment coming with more uh you know consolidation on the borders and this is coming from Israel. The same thing had happened in 2020 when the amount of flights from Israel to Azerbaijan were uh well indescribable well as for turkey Turkey, well th- there 's not much to say it's uh, as they call themselves uh you know, um, one nation to to uh, to countries. Turkey, blatantly, uh, partner for Azerbaijan. Turkey is always seems very vocal about its support for Azerbaijan. Turkey is also kind of, uh, very vocal about its support. Turkey coordinated its normalization <laughs> process with Armenia. To Azerbaijan, so there was. So you kind have of like Turkey and Israel. Right
0: there. You have Turkey and Israel supporting Azerbaijan, and Russia has a mutual defense pact with Armenia. Where do you see this going? Um, what do you think would lead to a lasting and just negotiated peace, Rubina? In this last minute, we have.
4: Uh, I think the just negotiated this, the, the uh, peace between Armenia and. Azerbaijan, if that's the question, Uh, well, the Karabakh conflict was a big part of this negotiation piece, which is constantly being dragged into the nuclear peace peace, uh, discussions. Uh, Well, the thing is, it's more than clear that Russia has, as uh, political scientists have said, like, Abdicated its duties towards Armenia time and again, time and again, and uh, is now effectively—these uh, are my words—punishing Armenia for its uh, western pivot, uh, with uh, basically abdicating all. Uh, this humanitarian crisis in Artsakh would have been and should have been prevented if not the port of failure of the uh, Russian peacekeeping mission. Uh, well, this is. Through the watchful eye and helpful hand of the Russian peacekeeping mission and the Russian Federation that this has happened at this time, like the way it has happened, because Russia is growing increasingly uh, dissatisfied and concerned uh, with Armenia. Western pivot and Western uh, well presence in Armenia to start with. Also, this is in regards to the uh, UN monitoring mission on Armenia's border. So Russia is losing Armenia, and therefore, if Armenia loses uh, Artsakh, which has fought for and died for for three decades now, well, uh, maybe as Armenia would come to uh, to its senses. T- 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 t-
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we will continue to cover this. Rubina Margosian, managing editor with EVN Report, an independent media outlet based in Armenia, uh, speaking to us from Yerevan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Coming up, we'll speak with Ukrainian-American journalist Lev Golinkin. He's the one who exposed the Ukrainian World War II veteran who was honored last week in the Canadian House of Commons revealed that he was actually a Nazi. Stay with us. Moves composed by Serge Tankian. This is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to the revelation that the Ukrainian World War II veteran honored last week in the Canadian House of Commons was actually a Nazi, setting off a diplomatic crisis. Last Friday, Canada's House of Commons gave a standing ovation. To a Canadian Ukrainian veteran who fought in a Nazi SS unit during World War II. 98 year old Yaroslav Hunka was honored during a visit by the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky, who also applauded him.
6: Here in the chamber today, Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians. And continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98.
0: That's the speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Rota, who invited Yaroslav Hunter. Rota resigned from his post Tuesday.
6: This House is above any of us. Therefore, I must step down as your speaker. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House during the joint address to Parliament of President Zelensky. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland, among other nations. I accept full responsibility for my actions.
0: On Wednesday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also formally apologized.
3: I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. Friday's joint session was about what Canada stands for, about our steadfast support of Ukraine's fight against Putin's brutality, lies, and violence. It was a moment to celebrate and acknowledge the sacrifices of Ukrainians as they fight for their democracy, their freedom, their language and culture, and for peace. This is the side Canada was on in World War II, and this is the side we are on today.
0: Meanwhile, Canada's conservative leader Pierre Poiliev, described the event honoring the former Nazi soldier as the biggest single diplomatic embarrassment in Canada's history. This week, Poland's education minister issued a statement calling for Hunka's extradition to Poland to be tried. For more, we're joined by Lev Galinkin. He is the Ukrainian-American journalist who's reporting for The Forward, first confirmed Yaroslav Hunko was a World War II veteran who fought in a Nazi SS unit. Lev has reported extensively on the Ukraine crisis, Russia and the far right. Welcome back to Democracy Now, Lev. So explain exactly who this guy Hunko was. How was it that he's standing there, um, 98 years old, in the gallery, um, and pointed out uh, by the House of Commons Speaker, um, and everyone applauded. You have Trudeau res- uh, apologizing. I don't think um, uh, Zelensky has said anything about this yet.
1: He has not, um, as far as you know. Zelensky has condemned uh, this unit, S.S. Galichna, in 2021 when there was a march in its honor in Kyiv. So he condemned it in 2021, he's been silent since, as far as this incident. I'll tell you this, Amy, as soon as I saw the news that he was described as a fighter for Ukraine's independence against Russia, I knew that he was a Nazi collaborator. The only question, the first question that just went through my mind was which unit was he in? Because that's, uh, that's a euphemism that they use to say, uh, you know, we didn't fight for Germany, we fought against Russia. Uh, it's it's a cheap rhetorical trick because when they fought against Russia, they were fighting alongside and under command of Nazi Germany. And honestly, I have been shocked because I have reported on Canada's dark history in taking in Nazi collaborators, including in the nation. Um, about Canada's Nazi monuments, which uh, which they have monuments to this to this exact division. This is a country that on its soil has monuments celebrating uh, the Waffen-SS, as does the United States. So in many ways, Yaroslav Hunka belonged up in the parliament because he was there as part of a country that took in at least 2,000 SS Galichina vets, 2,000 of these Waffen-SS soldiers from a division that committed horrific war crimes. And uh, one of the interesting things is because they were taking in partly because they were enemies of the USSR, so it was Cold War politics. But, and this is something that gets often lost, uh, an ancillary benefit for why Canada took them in was the using them as strike breakers to break the powers of the Union's. The unions were growing strong after World War II, and these men were organized and ready to act as strikebreakers. So this is a, a dark part of Canada's domestic policy and foreign policy together.
0: So if you can explain further when it comes to World War II, how these uh nazi uh units were formed what their relationship was with germany
1: yes it's very important to know that uh these people are described as you know they're ukrainian heroes the overwhelming majority of ukraine fought against the third reich two and a half million ukrainians perished they gave their lives fighting against the third reich uh the only ones who really say that uh you know Ukraine, all of Ukraine collaborated with the Nazis. That's what Vladimir Putin says. That's what Moscow propaganda says. The reality is that a small region in western Ukraine welcomed the Nazis. And this is the same region where they started slaughtering Jews as soon as the Nazis invaded. In many cases, um, the SS didn't even have to kill the Jews because the Ukrainian nationalist uh, death squads have already done it. So these, uh, this small percentage rose up, they joined the Nazis, and in 1943, when Germany needed even more soldiers because Germany was losing the war, they created this Waffen-SS division, uh, which was mostly composed of volunteers, and people like Juncker, uh said that they volunteered for this division, they committed war crimes, at the end of this, uh, at the end of the war, they were taken in and they were released, and many of them, thousands, were taken into the UK, into the US, into Canada. Uh, so, in and the, the biggest thing that's a part, that people should understand is that when we think of Nazis being taken into the new world, we think of Argentina and Nazis hiding there and coming, keeping a low profile. Uh, these Nazis were openly proud of what they did in Canada. They formed organizations, they formed veterans associations. I think, you know, people have been asking me, like, what was he thinking? Why was he even putting himself out there? And the answer is because Canada spent so long turning a blind eye to these people and allowing them to, to be proud of who they are. The notion that anything would happen, the notion that people would co- would complain, I don't think it crossed this man's mind. Because I and everybody everybody else, the few people who reported about this, we were just called Russian propagandists. And even though even though this were literal Nazis who were historically proved to have committed war crimes, people didn't want to hear it because they were it's it's Holocaust revisionism. They were portrayed as heroes. They suddenly be, these, these are war criminals who successfully painted themselves as heroes. So I was stunned that all of a sudden Canada decided to face its past.
0: So why do you think the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has not said anything, given he's condemned that unit in the past? I mean, there he was, um, along with, obviously, Justin Trudeau, the uh, House of Commons speaker who has since resigned, applauding this man. And how was he brought to the House of Speakers' attention? I think he lived in his area uh, to be brought to the House of Commons, to be celebrated as Zelensky met with the House of Commons—
1: uh, well, this is a man who was active in the community. Especially, I think there's evidence coming out that he he do- he definitely donated money. Junka did, and his family did. He donated money to the University of Alberta, for example, for a scholarship that was that the university just decided just announced they were giving away. So, this is a person who was active in the community. So, he wasn't just some random uh, random person plucked at random. So. As far as that, as far as Zelensky, I mean, he's in the middle of fighting a war. That's obviously a something that's in his mind. He was just away on a state visit. He came back, uh, but I think the important thing is so far, I don't think anybody's asked him in the media. And I think the important question is not why hasn't he said anything, but why wasn't he asked for his response when uh, Trudeau apologized, when the Canadian Parliament speaker apologized, and they also just want to say just to understand how entrenched, this is in Canada, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, has spent years presenting her grandfather, who was a Nazi collaborator, as a war victim. OK, so the Canadian Parliament speaker spent 30 seconds turning a perpetrator into a hero. Christia Freeland has done it for decades. And well, explain was mid-
0: exactly who her maternal grandfather is.
1: Her grandfather worked as a propagandist that took over a Polish newspaper. The newspaper used to be owned by a Jew who was sent and murdered in the death camps along with his family. And her grandfather proceeded then to turn out anti-Semitic propaganda, inflaming Jew, anti-Jewish hatred as the Holocaust. This was is Michael Tromiak. Water. Yes. So and again, of course, she's not responsible for the sins of her grandfather. And nobody's saying that. The problem is that she was actively presenting him as a victim, that she was presenting this narrative of these people were war victims and these people should be idolized. And when she was caught, she basically just blamed Russian propaganda and walked away. And again, it's not the fact that her—it's not she's not responsible for her grandfather. She is responsible for twisting history and for revisionism and for presenting a perpetrator as a victim. And that just shows you that, you know, of course, Hunka didn't think anything would happen because you have the deputy prime minister who was caught uh, whitewashing a, a Nazi collaborator and nothing happened. So. So, Levit, you can now Canada's looking at it.
0: Can you talk ahead, about uh, Poland uh, and the education ministry saying that they want Hunka extradited to be tried? I mean, the man is 98 yeah. years old.
1: Um There's a mix of politics and real pain happening there. The education minister is part of a far right section of Poland. Okay, so it's hard to say that he's simply doing it uh, because of his care for this. It's it's a political issue, and unfortunately, this has led to a lot of tension between Poland and Ukraine because Poland is one of Ukraine's greatest allies. But because these units, like SS Galicina, they had committed horrible crimes against Polish civilians. This unit, it wasn't good at actually fighting. It lost when it fought actual troops. The only thing it was pretty good at was suppressing uh, resistance and committing war crimes against unarmed civilians. So Poland very much uh, feels this pain when Ukraine, which is its ally, insists on honoring butchers of poles but Russia is also using it and pro russian factions in the Polish society are using it to drive a wedge between Poland and Ukraine. So um, the Polish I mean, one of the, he, he's doing it because there's genuine pain there because because SS Galiciina did commit war crimes but there's also a political aspect to it that uh it's not a hundred percent simply just wanting to get justice there's a lot of unfortunately dirty politics involved in it on both sides
0: well lev Galenkin, we want to thank you for being with us ukrainian american journalists reported extensively on the ukraine crisis russia on the far right we'll link to your latest piece in the forward it's headlined canada's house speaker resigns over celebration of 98 year old who fought in nazi unit uh, Lev Galenkin's memoir is titled Backpack, a Bear, and Eight Crates of Vodka, a Memoir of Soviet Ukraine. Next up, we speak to the deputy foreign minister of Cuba about the recent attack on the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C., and more. Stay with us.
3: Chastity.
4: Sling shots in Palestina I'm with workers uprising and the right to unionize. We ain't crossed the border, so you better legalize. I'm with La Peña del Bronx. I'm still with Victor Toro, cause gentrification is polluting my borough. So, bro, never. South Bronx forever. Decolonize the block, make your neighborhood better. I ain't down with the rich, I'm more rich. You Perez. Don't talk to grand juries or cooperate with feds.
3: I'm with students, doctors, janitors, teachers. We need living wages, but they. No
4: believers, Monita, Boreto, Sparkin, Hunts Point, my point, my head, I love. We forces, forming our deck DS, taking over
1: buildings, rebel DS for the children. Politics the sickness. Streets express symptoms. You gotta put it quick.
0: Which side are you on by Rebel Diaz? Here on Democracy Now, democracynow.org the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Cuba as government officials have released footage of an individual throwing two Molotov cocktails inside the Cuban embassy compound in Washington, D.C., last Sunday. Cuban officials condemned it as a terrorist attack, while the Biden administration has denounced the assault but stopped short of describing it as terrorism. An investigation is underway. No arrests have been made. Cuban officials say this is the latest in a series of attacks against Cuban diplomatic missions in recent years. The attack came as international pressure continues to mount, demanding the Biden administration lift its embargo on Cuba and remove the nation from a list of state sponsors of terrorism. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel addressed the U.N. General Assembly in New York last week where he stressed the urgency of a new and fairer global contract.
5: The G77 was founded six decades ago to repair centuries of injustice and abandonment. And in today's convulsive world, they are entangled in a host of world crises where poverty is on the rise and hunger is even greater. We are united by the need to change, which has not been resolved, and by the condition of being the main victims of the current global multidimensional crisis, abusive unequal exchange, scientific and technological gaps, and the degradation of the environment. But We are also united and have been for more than half a century now by the inescapable challenge and the determination to transform the current international order, which, as well as being exclusionary and irrational, is unsustainable for the planet and is not viable for the well-being of all.
0: Just ahead of the United Nations General Assembly, Cuba hosted the G-77 summit in Havana, where leaders of low- and middle-income countries echoed calls for a change to the international order. The meeting, which was also attended by China, came at a time of growing frustration against Western powers and divisions over the war in Ukraine. Also, the fight against the climate crisis and the global economic system as many global South nations face unprecedented debt, rising living costs and worsening economic crises. Cuban President Diaz-Canel also spoke about the global debt at the UN General Assembly last week.
5: Most of the G77 nations are forced to allocate more resources to servicing debt than to investments in health or education. What sustainable development can be achieved with that noose around their necks?
0: Well, for more, we're joined in New York by Carlos Fernandez de Cocio, Cuba's deputy foreign minister. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's good to have you with us. If you could start off um, by talking about the attack on the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. Cuba's just released the video footage of the Molotov cocktails being thrown in the compound.
2: Thank you for having me. Um, as you have explained, this is uh, throwing two Molotov uh, cocktail over the fence and against the building of the embassy. This is in the middle of the capital of the United States on 16th Street, just a few miles from the White House. By any standard, in most capitals of the world, that would be considered a terrorist act. Imagine if it would have happened to a U.S. embassy or a NATO member embassy anywhere in the world, it would immediately be called. A terrorist act, it hasn't happened to this moment. Now, there's a history of aggression against Cuban embassies and of terrorism against Cuba. And the majority of that terrorism has been financed, organized, or perpetrated from the territory of the United States by people who live here. There's a long history for that, and there are many victims in Cuba of terrorism organized, perpetrated, and carried out from the territory of the United States.
0: What do you want to see happen right now?
2: We would expect a thorough investigation, a speedy investigation, and for the perpetrators to be prosecuted and treated as what they are, as criminals that committed a terrorist act against a diplomatic mission in the center of the U.S. Capitol.
0: Um, I want to go to a clip. Uh, of Democratic Massachusetts Congressmember Jim McGovern talking about Cuba on the House floor yesterday.
1: Current U.S. policy towards Cuba is best described as continuing the sanctions and policies of Donald Trump. Every day our policies hurt the Cuban people. One thing the United States can do to provide relief is to remove Cuba from the state sponsor of terrorism list. There is absolutely no reason for Cuba to be on that list, none, and its impact affects nearly every global financial and economic institution. Many European nations and U.S. allies want to help relieve the suffering of the Cuban people, especially in the areas of health and basic needs, but their hands are tied because of the SST list and its onerous financial restrictions and punishments. Our policy is a relic from the Cold War, and quite frankly, it's cruel.
0: So that's Congressmember Jim McGovern of Massachusetts. We're talking to Cuba's Deputy Foreign Minister, Carlos Fernandez de Casillo. If you can respond to what the Congressmember is saying, describe the effects of the sanctions on Cuba, and if you can relate it to the increasing number of migrants, we're seeing the same thing with Venezuela, where the U.S. um, has imposed major sanctions against the government, Um, the increase in number of migrants that coming into the United States.
2: The the last phrase that, that the congressman used was that it's a cruel policy. And that's the aim of what's being done. There's no rationale, there's no reasonable argument by any U.S. politician or member of the government to explain why Cuba should be in that list. Cuba's relationship with terrorism is as a victim. Over 3,400 deaths caused by terrorism in Cuba, not as a perpetrator. Now, the reason it's there is because of its economic effect. It's a tool to reinforce the economic blockade. A country that is, is in that list suffers the consequences of financial transactions and commercial transac- transactions being cut or being damaged anywhere in the world. A few weeks after Cuba was put in that list in 2021, dozens of financial institutions that had a long relationship with Cuba severed that relationship and cut it simply because they fear punishment by the United States or they think that they will be in some way, they will see their interests damaged in doing business with the United States because of the influence, extraterritorial influence of the United States. I'll give you another example. Tourists from Europe are threatened by the United States if they travel to Cuba, that they will have problems if they wish to travel to the United States. They will lose the exemption that they have or the waiver that they have as Europeans to travel to the U.S. And they would have to request a visa with the possibility of it being denied. So it's an extraterritorial threat from the U.S. to European now, tourism is a main source of income for Cuba. It's one of our main industries. So it has an impact in our f- sources of fi- the financial resources that we need to, de- to stabilize and to develop the economy. So it has an influence in Cuba's everyday life, in doing business, in trying to sell, in trying to buy, trying to make payments, trying to obtain credits from any country. I'm not speaking about the United States. I'm speaking any country around the world, including countries that have a good political relationship with Cuba, which are friendly, with which we have cooperation, which we have a long lasting relationship. But the effect and the impact of U.S. policy has a threatening effect on them.
0: So can you explain your understanding of why the Biden administration is doing this, continuing this, given that when Biden was vice president under President Obama, they changed the relationship with Cuba, talking about normalizing that relationship?
2: It's a very important question, one that we normally ask Americans for them to explain to us why the president, that during the electoral campaign, committed to the to, the, to voters, to electors, that he would change swiftly the policy, he hasn't done it, and the excuses change, and the reasons and the pretexts change, to the to elections, to political considerations, to the presence of powerful members in Congress that. Uh, put obstacles to the president uh, to act. But truly, the reason is not very clear to us beyond the wish of trying to make life as unbearable as possible for the people of Cuba as a way of trying to extract from Cuba political concessions.
0: Talk about the climate crisis. I mean, it's an issue the Cuban president raised addressing world leaders at the UN General Assembly as well um, as other G7 nations. How you are dealing with this?
2: We have, I I suspect you're speaking about the world crisis and the economic crisis, or the economic crisis. The
0: climate crisis.
2: The climate crisis is one of the largest challenges for humankind, and we're all in it together. It's in many ways a result of unsustainable patterns of production and consumption that have continued to exist in spite of the conventions, in spite of, of agreements, and it's a big threat. Unfortunately, it is a greater threat for developing countries. Small island states, uh, low coast desert uh, countries, and the impact that's always going to be greater to the countries that suffer the disadvantages of an unfair international economic order that is also unsustainable. You need financing. You need to change the rules of trade, the, the rules of financing, the rules of transfer of technology. Without that, the climate change, which again will threaten all, will continue to be there and will not be addressed.
0: And talk about hosting the G77 in Cuba. Uh, We just spoke to the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, uh, who was just in Havana, and talked about also joining with um, Lula, um, with uh, South African president Ramaphosa, I think AMLO, the Mexican president, right? Uh, uh, Your president was just in Mexico, has promised to lead a worldwide campaign to lift the embargo against Cuba.
2: Well, Cuba chairs during this year, 2023, the Group of 77. It's a responsibility we took in January to try to find consensus, to to conciliate positions in a very diverse group, large countries, small countries, different ideologies. But we all suffer the same conditions of an unfair international economic order. As part of that responsibility, we hosted this summit in Cuba in which we put emphasis in science, technology and innovation as fundamental factors that can help make the leap that our countries need and and deserve. Most of these leaders in Cuba spoke about the issues of the Group of 77 and developing countries, but they also called attention on the injustices being committed against Cuba, specifically the economy blockade, specifically the presence in the list of countries that allegedly sponsor terrorism. And we believe that there's a united front. There's a common position that is also shared by the Europeans in the case of the U.S. policy towards Cuba.
0: We have to leave it there. We're going to conduct this interview in Spanish and post it at democracynow.org. Carlos Fernandez de Casillo, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, speaking to us from New York. And this breaking news, California Senator Diane Feinstein has died at the age of 90. She was the oldest member of the Senate, the longest serving woman. Diane Feinstein was also the first woman to serve as mayor of San Francisco. Again, this news, California Senator Dianne Feinstein has died. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us.